Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 129, The Virginia Resolves. Last time out, we looked at two huge blunders by the Granville Ministry, the Stamp Act and the Quartering Act. The Stamp Act introduced a new tax on various paper products in the North American colonies, while the Quartering Act made a number of impositions on the colonists to provide for the army. Without giving Major General Gage the authority to station soldiers in private houses, both of these measures would provoke extreme resistance in America. While all this had been going on over the winter of 1764-1765, King George was bedridden with a mystery ailment. During the months away from politics, he had plenty of time to consider his own mortality, and he reached the conclusion that he needed to prepare for the event of his death. His son George was only two, and he did not want his younger brother Edward to be regent, so he instead wanted the regency to be held by his mother, who was, you'll recall, extremely close with Lord Bute. Grenville was appalled. No British monarch had named their own regent before. The issue divided the cabinet, and it went to the Commons, where it too was unsure of what the right decision was. The result was the Regency Act, passed by Parliament on May 13th, which created a Regency Council from which a regent could be chosen. No one was happy with this, especially King George. He began to prepare to force Grenville out of office, when a violent mob broke out in London. I won't go into too much detail, but basically, silk merchants were struggling in the post-war depression, and because of foreign competition, it took three days for the army to get the situation under control. George entirely blamed his ministers. He spoke with his uncle, our old friend Cumberland, about taking control of the army, and approached Pitt about forming a government. He was very unsubtle in his approach, which made it quite embarrassing when Pitt turned him down, and then even more so when Newcastle declined as well, refusing to work without Pitt. Against all his wishes, the king had no choice but to announce his unconditional support for Grenville. Grenville thought he had weathered the storm, but he had merely entered its eye. George made yet another attempt to restore Pitt in June. He used Cumberland as an intermediary, which Pitt found insulting, so he once again refused. Cumberland was now tasked with putting together a ministry. With Cumberland as Prime Minister, but acting only as a figurehead, this gave the Whigs the confidence that the new ministry would enjoy royal support. Cumberland also had a loss of connections, and by asking friends to join the ministry, it was unlikely they would refuse him. The crew assembled by Cumberland included Charles Townsend as Paymaster General, General Henry Seymour Conway as Leader of the House of Commons and Secretary of State for the Southern Department, Augustus Henry Fitzroy, the Duke of Grafton, as Secretary of State for the Northern Department, and Charles Watson Wentworth, the Marquess of Rockingham, 
as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Could this be the gutsy, innovative and bold group to calm down the situation in North America and restore peace to the British Empire? Well, uh, in a word, no. Of this group, the person we've dealt with most of all was Cumberland. We've seen how he did not deserve to be in high office through his disastrous influence on British policy in the Seven Years' War, capped by briefly forcing Hanover out of the war. He took that kind of skill and expertise and had used it to put together an absolutely terrible combination of individuals. All senior figures in the government lacked experience. Conway had been secretary to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and was 48, making him the most experienced after Cumberland. Rockingham was 35, and Grafton only 30. Newcastle, an immensely valuable figure, was wasted as Lord Privy Seal. King George, to his credit, recognised that this was not an impressive ministry, but he was so determined to be rid of Grenville that he proceeded without caution. Grenville realised he was about to be pushed, and so on July the 10th he jumped, finishing with one final pompous lecture, for which I'd like to quote volume 3 of the Grenville Papers, originally edited by William James Smith in 1853. Quote, Grenville understood that the plan of George's new administration was a total subversion of the former, that nothing having been undertaken as a measure without his majesty's abrogation, he knew not how he would let himself be persuaded to see it in so different a light, and most particularly on the regulations concerning the colonies, that he besought his majesty, as he valued his own safety, not to suffer anyone to advise him to separate or draw the line between his British and American dominions, that his colonies was the richest jewel of his crown, that, for his own part, he must uniformly maintain his former opinions, both in Parliament and out of it, that whatever was proposed in Parliament must abide the sentence passed upon it there, but that if any man ventured to defeat the regulations laid down for the colonies, by a slackness in the execution, he should look upon him as a criminal and betrayer of his country. End quote. From this, we can see Grenville's intentions to bring the American colonies fully into the British imperial system, not to draw a line between the British and American dominions, perhaps merging them, much as Scotland and England had done in 1707. Grenville clearly saw that the American question would dominate British politics for the next two decades, and he did not trust the abilities of the men left in command. So, let's see how they cope. After all, the Stamp Act and the Quartering Act were ticking time bombs. Word of the Stamp Act reached America in 1765, and the reaction was, well, uh, apathetic. Several colonies, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, had previously protested against the Stamp Act. But while the newspapers took a strong interest, there was virtually nothing done by the Assemblymen. Boston held a town meeting on May 13th, but 
this went nowhere. While there was opposition, notably from James Otis, Otis had spent much of the previous year in a pamphlet war, many saw him as a controversialist, with a series of incoherent positions, and his allies were unable to effectively unite because of it. The best that could be done was Otis proposing an intercolonial conference in New York to discuss the act. Nothing could be found that was illegal, and the governor gave it his support. An invitation was sent on June the 8th for a conference in October that would become the Stamp Act Congress. The reaction in Virginia was very muted, and by mid-May, most assemblymen had already returned home, assuming that nothing would be done. But when legislative duties were completed, the House of Burgesses set about to discuss what steps should be taken in response to the Stamp Act. At this point, I'd like to introduce yet another founding father to you. Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was born in 1736 in Hanover County, Virginia, on the family farm. His father had emigrated from Scotland in the 1720s and married a wealthy widow from a prominent local family. He was educated at home by his father, became a clerk at 15, and opened a store with his brother when he was 16. It failed. He then married Shara Shelton in 1754 and had a brief, unsuccessful career as a farmer. He ended up running the Hanover Tavern, owned by his father-in-law, at which he came into contact with a young Thomas Jefferson, but more on him later. While running the tavern, Henry began to study law, passing the bar in April 1760. He made his name fighting a case against the Anglican clergy, and became a local celebrity. He was well known for being friendly and being a fierce advocate of the people. When a representative for Louisa County retired, Henry was elected to take his place, which he did on the 20th of May, 1765. It was quite common that new members say nothing in the House of Burgesses for the first couple of sessions, so it caused a stir when on his eighth day, he launched into a blistering attack on the House leadership for a self-interested bill I won't go into. And then, the following day, he introduced five Virginia resolves, which I'm just going to quote in full. 1. Resolved that the first adventures and settlers of His Majesty's colony and dominion of Virginia brought with them and transmitted to their posterity and all other His Majesty's subjects, since inhabiting in this His Majesty's said colony, all the liberties, privileges, franchises, and immunities that have at any time been held, enjoyed, and possessed by the people of Great Britain. 2. Resolved, that by two royal charters granted by King James I, the colonists aforesaid are declared entitled to all liberties, privileges, and immunities of denizens and natural subjects to all intents and purposes, as if they have been abiding and born within the realm of England. 3. Resolved, that the taxation of the people by themselves, 
or by persons chosen by themselves to represent them, who can only know what taxes the people are able to bear, or the easiest method of raising them, and must themselves be affected by every tax laid out on the people, is the only security against a burdensome taxation and the distinguishing characteristic of British freedom, without which the ancient constitution cannot exist. 4. Resolved. That his majesty's liege people of this, his most ancient and loyal colony, have without interruption enjoyed the inestimable right of being governed by such laws, respecting their internal policy and taxation, as had arrived from their own consent, with the approbation of their sovereign, or his substitute, and that the same has never been forfeited or yielded up, but has been constantly recognised by the kings and people of Great Britain. 5. Resolved, therefore, that the General Assembly of this colony have the only and exclusive right and power to lay taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony, and that every attempt to vest such power in any person or persons whatsoever, other than the General Assembly aforesaid, has a manifest tendency to destroy British as well as American freedom. End quote. In his attempts to persuade the House, Henry famously said, quote, Caesar has his Brutus, Charles I his Cromwell, and George III may profit by their example. End quote. It was a dramatic moment that sparked heated debate, but the results were passed. After Henry left, the more conservative members of the House struck off the particularly inflammatory fifth resolve, but the other four were left alone. The debates were overheard by Jefferson, then a 22-year-old student, who later struggled to recall Henry's words, but easily remembered how Henry had made him feel. Henry made the Stamp Act an infringement on their rights as Virginian Englishmen, and made the question a moral one rather than a political one. The Virginia Resolves were printed and entered public circulation. We'll see how the public reacted next time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.